Hi there, and welcome to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. My name is Patrick Francie, and I'm the CEO of the Real Estate Investment Network. In addition to being a business owner, I'm also a real estate investor, I'm a coach, I'm a husband, I'm a very proud grandfather. And along with that, I'm also committed to stretching beyond what I've already achieved and of living a fulfilled life by continuing to make a positive difference in the world. I invite you to join me to listen in on the Everyday Millionaire podcast as I interview and have conversations with seemingly ordinary individuals who have achieved some pretty extraordinary results, whether it be in their life, in their business, in real estate, And it's here where I'm going to delve into the details of their journey, along with the paths they've traveled to get where they are today, and as importantly, where they intend to go in the future. My guests are here to inspire. They're here to help you learn by talking about what's real for them, both in their wins and in their challenges, from the life and the lifestyle they live to the person they had to become along the way in creating and building their financial futures for themselves and their families. Before I begin this episode, I'll start by first thanking you for listening in and for your support and the feedback you provide us on the show, as well as to ask you to please continue to send your comments, your suggestions, or your questions directly to me at CEO at RainCanada.com. That is CEO at R-E-I-N-Canada.com. And if you're inclined, please share this podcast with your friends or your family and with people you know or perhaps even people you don't know. Rate the show and comment on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or whatever platform you happen to use to listen in. And while you're at it, please follow me on the Everyday Millionaire Facebook page. So thanks again for the feedback you provide us. It's definitely appreciated. Okay, let's get on with this show and have a conversation with today's guest. My guest today, Philip McKernan, works with entrepreneurs and business leaders from around the world. When people seek clarity about their future, get stuck in their life, or are simply inspired to push themselves to more, Philip is a trusted source of experience, insights, and guidance. As a speaker, he has inspired and challenged the Canadian Olympic team, the Pentagon, professional football teams, and that's just to name a few. He's also the founder and is spearheading the One Last Talk movement. As a world-class coach, what separates Philip from others is his originality. He brings new conversations to the table and is built to think and challenge the status quo rather than simply repackaging business and life-hacking strategies. He's considered a modern-day philosopher of the human experience, including his philosophy around soul set which equips and empowers people to uncover their gifts and impact the world. Philip is driven to have his clients create a vision for their lives about what's possible and pioneer life-changing experience for those who believe they are destined for more. Today, Philip joins me to share his journey to the world-class coach he is today, along with his insights, his perspective, and the guidance he shares on being the best we can be. Listen in. Philip McKernan, welcome to the Everyday Millionaire podcast, my friend. It's been a long time since we've chatted. Yes, it has. Thanks for having me. So literally, we're getting started in this conversation, and we have had like three minutes into the conversation. We're in the middle of a corona crisis, and uh, lots to talk about today, but lots to get caught up on. Uh, We've known each other a number of years, and uh, certainly... 
uh, spent a lot of time together many years ago, and then uh, life got happening, and here we are today. Absolutely. So, Philip, what the hell are you doing these days? What you got going on? You're coach extraordinaire. You're—I don't want to put words in your mouth. What do you call yourself? Because you're very, very accomplished in a cool industry. You've made a huge difference in people's lives. So, tell me about what you're doing. I actually, uh, you know, I, I've I've always resisted. Well, first of all, I drove myself nuts trying to have the perfect title for what I do and to try to, you know, describe it in 10 seconds or less. And then I drove myself completely insane. And I decided, you know what, I'll let other people decide what I do and uh, through the lens of the work we do. But I think if I had to describe who I am and what I do in one word, and that is a guide, um, less of a coach and more of a guide. A, 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 you know, if there's a mountain here, a coach will teach you how to, you know, to climb and, you know, use the ropes, use the crampons, use the ice pick, whatever. A guide is um, basically somebody who assumes you can already climb the mountain. You have the answers. My job is to help you navigate the mountain because you may not have climbed this mountain before, whatever the mountain represents in your life. So I would consider myself more of a guide than a, than a coach. And But I, I'm guiding or coaching lots of people from sports, sports athletes to uh, successful people and people who are just trying to start on the ladder. And um, my, my primary sweet spot is helping people in their, their personal lives so then they can show up in their professional lives in a better way. That's great. You know, and, and not that I'm drawing comparisons in a direct way, but, you know, of course, Stephanie struggled, my wife, Stephanie Hanlon, who's also a coach and has been for many years, struggled with the same thing. You know, what kind of a coach? What? Well, you, you know, she she does not like the term life coach. I think she, she just thinks it's, you know, she doesn't like it. It doesn't make sense to her. Uh, she's been a, you know, she works with athletes, but she's not a, a technical coach for athletes. So she's used mental performance coach. Uh, she's just performance coach. Um, and like you, she's used guide, but it is really hard to describe what individuals like you or Stephanie do. I've uh, recently adopted the term uh, of get your shit together coach. And that was the best I could come up with because this really is that, you know, to your point, you excel in helping people personally so that they in fact can succeed better and, and uh, do a better job professionally. There's that yeah. direct connection, but Tell me a little bit about the business model that you have and the kind of the work that you're doing, Philip, uh, you know, to give listeners a context for where we're going on this in this conversation. Yeah, so so basically, we have doubled down over the last number of years on live events, live intimate experiences. So we consider ourselves a boutique coaching company. So we do kind of live smaller experiences around 20 people, um, 20 to 25 people in Ireland. Um, uh, twice, we do two different events in Ireland each year. Then I bring in a, a group of people on a give and grow experience where they go and give back to a community. And then we hike in the mountains. We do that in Peru and India. And we've done it in Guatemala and so on and so forth. And then I do some one-to-one, but very, very little. So at any one, any given time, I probably have two maybe personal clients. And then I am also doing some, what we have dubbed team deepening. So team deepening is where the future of organizations and, and teams is not team building, uh, which is, is, is kind of, I think, old-fashioned and doesn't necessarily keep up with, with where the world is moving. So we help teams connect at a deeper level and a more emotional level so they can you know, produce better results and so on and so forth. So primarily live events, some online stuff. And then of course, you know, with the market the way it is right now, and this coronavirus crisis, as you refer to it, is uh, it basically means that we're a little bit more exposed than perhaps we we could have been or should have been. But I still believe that um, the biggest challenge that we have, and I say this with greatest respect in the world, even with the coronavirus, 
I think an even bigger challenge in the world, and this is maybe too sensitive a subject for people to uh, maybe hear right now or they'll disagree, is that the greatest pandemic we, we are facing as humans right now is loneliness. Um, we can have 10,000 people following us on Twitter. We can have 5,000 Facebook friends. We can have a group of people that we connect with every week and still feel isolated and alone in the world. And my job, as long as I'm on this earth, is to eradicate that for as many people as possible. And that's why we created a concept called One Last Talk, which we can talk about it or not, as the case may be. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, there's um, th- we have a lot to talk about, by the way, and, and coronavirus and how people are dealing with it and is just one of the many things I want to talk about. And I also want to talk about your journey to where you are today. But, you know, just to give, I want to keep digging a little bit deeper into the, the body of work that you're doing today, Philip. So if somebody's listening, and this isn't a promotion for your coaching program, that's not what this is about. I really do want people to understand uh, where you're at today, because the journey to get here for you has been a pretty epic journey from my perspective, you know, outside looking in a little bit part about your, er, you know, I was part of your early days of of that tipping point that you hit and, and watching, then watching you go on this journey and the stand you took and the work you did and, and the clarity that you had on your purpose and living your values. And to me, those are really big conversations. But, you know, if somebody's reaching out to you today, why would they reach out to you? So if they, what is the, the gap you're filling? What is the problem you're solving? If that's the right way to put it, how do people find you and, and why are they seeking you? We're getting the most extraordinary um, referral, Patrick, that I never imagined. I, I, you, I could have sat down and strategized in terms of our business model for 10 years, and I never would have imagined we got the referral that we're getting. The f- referral typically, so first and foremost, what we have had over the last, say, 10 years, maybe you know the last six, seven years in particular, is up to about two years ago, it was a very reactive audience. So we would have people that would hit a wall and say, okay, I'm finally ready to, to talk to you. Or people said, listen, you've scared the shit out of me. I've stayed away from your work, but you know what? My marriage is breaking down, my business is coming to to, to a head, or I've achieved success. And this is a huge one for us, but I just don't feel fulfilled. Like there's a gap, there's something missing in my life. And they, they, I would see that as more reactionary. Now what's happened for whatever reason, maybe it's the market, maybe it's us, maybe it's my energy, maybe it's messaging, I don't know, is we're, we're starting to attract a lot more people saying, hey, I want to be proactive in, the, in this journey. I don't want to just allow life to take me on this journey and to hopefully land on top of some ridge or some mountain at the end of some journey and be okay with that because the research shows that 90% of people die with regret. Now, I actually think that's incorrect. I think 98% of people or 95% of people die with regret. 90% of people live every day with some type of regret. So people are coming to us in a very reactionary, or historically, now they're in a very productive manner. My, my view is that we, we often the clients come with these dreams and aspirations and we pair it right back down to the person. So in, for, work, for example, I'm working with an MLS team major league soccer team and you know they're all about the player the player the player i believe if you work on the person the player will emerge so a lot of work we do is actually going back into the deep personal narrative the deep stories that the the, the, the things that people hold the stories they tell themselves the lack of doubt that the beliefs they have and really kind of stripping that away and then looking at the life they've built and often people's lives are out of alignment so if you think about a chiropractor who's your spine there's you know l4 l5 is out of alignment somewhat. Our job is just to help you realize where you're out of alignment, make some adjustments and start living from a place of more fulfillment and a place of more meaning and starting to execute our gifts and not just executing our talents in this world. So that gives you a sense of, of, of the work that we're doing. We also work with a lot of couples as well. 
Now, you know, there's uh, I'm trying to think of the name of the book. Uh, I think it's uh, back to your point about dying with regrets. Uh, a guest I had on my podcast a couple of years ago now, a guy by the name of Dan Hare wrote a book, and I believe the title is Regrets. I've had a few. And he went out and just for no reason, he wasn't trying to make money on the book. He literally, he just went out because he was really, really in, interested. He, just an amazing guy. Dan Hare, like I want, after I interviewed him, I wanted to be his best friend. I just had a man crush on him and just what he's done in his life. Cool dude. But he went out and interviewed 300 people that were, I want to say over 80 years old, some as old as 102 and really interviewed them and collected data on them. And it's, it's just an amazing realization that, yeah, regrets. I've had a few. And so um, I think it's cool that you're doing this body of work and supporting uh, people in, in that regard. Now, well, if I can interrupt you just for a second, if I can find this. I did a yoga class a couple of weeks ago, and this lady referred to, actually, I just found it, referred to a um, a study that was done by a lady who uh, worked with a lot of people who were in the late stages of their life. And it's a very common, it's been, it's been thrown around multiple times. And I just think it's a nice reminder for all of us, if you don't mind me just reading it very quickly. Please. And it's a study that almost most of your listeners have not, have, have probably heard multiple times. But this lady worked with lots of people in, um, you know, what we would call a hospice in Ireland where you're in the latter days of your life. Mm -hmm. And she worked with, you know, basically over years and collected the data. And the data showed up for her that the, the major regrets people had were the following. I wish I had courage to live, uh, live life true to myself, not the life others expected of me. I wish I hadn't worked so hard. I wish I'd had the courage to express my feelings. I wish I'd stayed in touch with my friends. And finally, I wish I had let myself be happier, which I think is the most extraordinary of all of the five. I wish I'd let myself be happier because I think sometimes we actually choose to make life way more difficult than it needs to be. That's interesting, uh, the choice of happiness. Let's dig in there just a little bit and because uh, there's all sorts of rabbit holes we are about to go down here if I don't stay focused. So on, the, on that happiness, why do you think people choose not to be happy? Well, I think a lot of us go back to what we're comfortable with. So there's comfort in the shit, uh, as bizarre as that might sound to, to some of us, that if we grew up with some type of trauma or a series of traumatic events in our lives, or we grew up in an unhappy home, um, I think that is, albeit something that we don't want and is uncomfortable, but there is comfortableness in the uncomfortableness. And we all try to get back to the place. Money is a great example. Often we, we end up producing the very thing that we are running from, which is poverty, for example. We end up actually blowing the money and almost going back to what we're familiar with. I also think that's one part of it. I think the bigger part of it, however, is, is also linked to that. And that is, I think we give ourselves what we feel we deserve. And I think if we don't feel we're good enough as a person, and maybe we're going super deep here, maybe this is, is, is not necessarily what people want. But at the end of the day, most human beings don't have a very good opinion of themselves. When, 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 the, when the lights are off and, and, and the noise is dulled, and I think this is one of the greatest challenges I'm seeing with the current climate today as people are being forced to slow down, forced, literally, in many countries around the world, <clears throat> um, they're being forced to, to really sit with themselves, <clears throat> excuse me, for, for the first time in a long time and maybe the first time ever. And a lot of us don't like who we are. And I, therefore, I believe that while intellectually, we have all these goals and dreams and aspirations around money and around success and everything else. But yet we seem to just F it up as we go through life. And I believe the reason for that is that we actually just basically don't feel deserving of the success that we intellectually say we want. 
Yeah, this is to me for me this is a great conversation. I mean, the whole context of the podcast is seemingly ordinary that have achieved extraordinary. And when we look at the conversations that I'm having with individuals who have achieved some success, however they define it by the way, I'm not defining it. I call it the everyday millionaire, which is really just a a way to uh, give context to the show of what people are trying to achieve in their life financially and how do they achieve it. It's, not, it's rarely a conversation about the mechanics of what people are doing. It's about who people are being because that's my fundamental belief. It's not what we do. It's who we are and what we do. So the, you know, in, in, within rain, we have a program we call elite 52, which is to support people in achieving uh, results in real estate but the fundamental, you know, the foundational part of the conversation is really about creating a context for your life. Now, just for conversation with us, we look at seven areas of your life, you know, familial, vocational, uh, social, and financial. We go through all seven areas. I don't need to go through that right now. And then we say, who are you choosing to be in the context for your life? It's, we actually call it a context for living, which is then based on what are, your, what are the values you're living? And this is such an important conversation and a huge lesson I've learned. As much as I've known this work, I got caught. And I'm so pissed off at myself some days. I've had to forgive myself on an ongoing basis for quite, uh, well, several months now, which is whose values are you living? And that's the underlying problem that I... You know, when I ask people, what are your top five values? Many can't give me an answer. They've never actually even thought about it. And I go, well, if you're living your life in alignment with your values and you're not happy with your life, but you don't know your values, that would be a sign that maybe you have to sit back and go, what are your values and how do you stay true to yourself? Yeah. And the lesson I learned is that when you compromise your values for the sake of a relationship, you come to resent the relationship. And I was very clear. I've always been very clear on my values, but I compromised them. I got taken down a path that uh, I've got nobody to blame for it. And I don't blame any. I have to own it all, which I do. But it's like, man, as, as much experience <laughs> that I have, I got caught, you know, and I compromised my value and it turned into a shit show uh, because of it. And, um, so I don't have regrets about it because I'm not that kind of an individual. I always look and say, well, you know, there's a lesson in here. It make me a better person and it makes me really clear. I'm really clear on my values right now. Nobody's taken me off that path. So in the context for anybody's life, that's kind of what I'm hearing you saying. You, you're using a marginally different language around it, but you're really saying live a life intentionally and be clear on who you want to be and what's causing the disharmony, if you will, or the challenges that you're facing of a lack of fulfillment or satisfaction is, is, am I covering that? Okay, Philip? The, the journey that we take people on, I think we're saying very similar things. The journey we take people on is understanding who they are at their core, their identity. Mm-hmm. And in within that is values for sure. And a lot of that is actually contained within their story. So we're very, we're very forward focused as a, as a, as a race. And a lot of us are either forward focused or desperately want to, to live in the now. Mm-hmm. And if my now is not very cool, I don't want to live in the now. I want to change it. But I, I think the one thing that we overlook as humans is that there is magic, there is gold, there is, there is just such opportunity and awareness in our past. Mm. 
Now, I don't do this every time, but one of the retreats we run, we go back in unapologetically into your past. And people are sometimes going, Jesus, like, what's the point of digging up this shit that I buried or that I didn't think was relevant? Or, oh, great, you brought a story to my awareness that now depresses me and makes me realize that I didn't have the perfect childhood that I've told myself I had had for 20 years. And then we say, okay, just bear with us. Just trust this process. And then what happens is we bring them into today and we look at their current reality. We do a deep dive into this. And then they start to, before we even present the bridge between the past and the present, they start going, oh, Jesus, now I know why I'm why I do that with money. Now I know why I keep messing up relationships. Now I know that actually I don't have to blame my mother. It's my response, whatever, whatever the awareness is. And then what happens is we begin to present the future that the future has been written. The past has created the present and the present is defining and creating the future, whether you like it or not. And it's only by going back into our past, we realize who we are. And I'll always remember Patrick on the, on the first day of one of these experiences in Ireland years ago, we started, let's just say there was 20 people in the room. And the very first girl, I'll never forget her. She's become a great friend. Her name is Miz. And I said to Miz, and she's from Ireland, I said, um, I said Miz, what, what, what brings you here? And she said to me, she looked at me, she said, you know, um, I've just got lost in the busyness of it all. I've got lost. I have two kids. We have a, we have a you know, successful business. And I just, but I've got swept along by it all. And, and I just have lost touch with who I am. And I looked at her and I thought, okay, this is morning one. Maybe it's a bit too deep to go there. But I looked at her and I said, but have you ever known who you are? Like really, at the core, beyond this, the narrative, beyond the, 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 the two children, the business, the college you went to, the city you grew up in, the brothers, the, the siblings, the parents, like deeper, have you ever had a sense of who you are at your core? And it only took her like four seconds to look at me with tears welling in her eyes. And she said, no. And the challenge is when you don't know who you are, which sounds like a fluffy subject to many, you start, you start navigating life, picking mountains you're going to climb, which are metaphors for, for, for investments or for businesses or for jobs. You're going to have kids. You're going to get swept along by society. You're going to be seeking to validate and to get attention and, and validation from your parents and, and your, your peers. And before you know it, you've built a business. And hopefully it's great. But sometimes you build a business, you go, fuck, I thought I'd feel better after all of this. The challenge is we, we didn't know who we are to begin with. So our journey that we bring people on is identity, beginning to understand their gift, which is very different to their talent. So an accountant might be good with numbers, but that's not, that's a talent. That's they're able to write code or they're able to use spreadsheets or their skill. whatever. Yeah. Their skill. Yeah. But the gift is something that is actually more deeper, more emotionally, you know, kind of, you know, contained within their, in their bodies. And secondly, is it so often something that is, is directly related to pain, some sort of, some sort of, uh, crisis they went through, trauma they went through, pain, and therefore we don't want to see it as a gift. So we identity the gift, and then how are you going to bring that to the world as an impact? And people, the problem with impact, and you probably see this, Patrick, every day, is people think, I need to be building an orphanage, writing checks for like a hundred grand, writing a book, or doing a speech in front of hundreds of people. That's not impact. We sent a letter out two days ago saying, if you are confined to your own home, and you cannot leave your home, please call on us to walk your dog, pick up groceries or get drugs from the, from the local pharmacy. And we simply delivered as a family to 30 homes either side of our house. And I'm not saying that's changing the world, but I'm telling you one thing. We felt so much better as a family. We felt connected as a family. And we have received text messages and emails from people going, I can't believe you did this. Thank you so much. What can we do for you? Now, has that solved the global crisis we're in? No, but it's our little bit. And it, it has made our street better for it. 
And maybe if everyone did that in every street, the world would be a better place. Well, you, you know, that's so great, Philip. And I mean, it's, it's, that's the starfish story, right? It, it made a difference to that starfish, right? And, and that's, that's really what you're saying in that conversation. I, and I love where this goes. But, you know, here's the fundamental. I, don't, like, I, I think that ultimately you and I are definitely on the same page in that this isn't fluffy conversations. This is, I mean, in the world of what you're coaching or what Stephanie has been coaching or people like in that kind of in that space that you guys play in, even to the degree that I do it with, you know, RAIN members in the community one-on-one in, in group sessions is that this is the kind of work that actually gives or supports the success that people want to achieve. But the success can't is not, often is not just defined it can't be defined just by money because money is not the end game. You know, defining and being satisfied and comfortable in who you are and believing in yourself and and actually making a difference in the world just by showing up and being who you are. I mean, that's pretty impactful stuff. I mean, you've worked with, you know, top athletes in the world. I know that you worked with some, uh, some I, I believe you worked with a couple of football teams, as in soccer. Uh, you've worked with professional athletes. You've worked with high-end business people. And ultimately, this is the work. It isn't about the money. I mean, money's an outcome, and that's cool. But they're, they get to the point, and at some, at some level, people, the most successful individuals get, it's not about the money. No, it's not. I've worked, and Patrick, and it's not to try and impress your listeners, but I've worked with one of the wealthiest families in America and therefore one of the wealthiest families in the world. And they actually brought me in to their home in Los Angeles and they asked me to do a day on happiness, and which is obviously a very broad subject. And basically I had three generations of families. And uh, what was fascinating was we did one exercise that kind of blew the door open and it was so obscenely you know, simple, and it's called the five happiest days. And it's been one of these exercises. I'm, I'm almost at the point in my own life going, okay, McKernan, enough already. Create another exercise, or you know, it's it's too, it's almost too simple. And that's the beauty about it. And I think if anybody does this exercise, you just basically write down on a piece of paper the five happiest days of your life. Not 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 days of beauty, beauty from and, and bliss from nine in the morning till nine, nine at night. But it could have just had a moment in it, a, a minute in it, an hour in it that was just brilliant. And then what you do is you hierarchy them afterwards, number one, two, three, four, and five. And what you'll find is your your, your husband will will have have one number one and number two is different to your number one and two. Your kids will have different perspectives. They'll give you insights into them. But ultimately, if you actually really consider it and do it deep, very few people, I've never almost never seen anybody goes, hey, do you remember that, remember that property I bought in Edmonton and I flipped it for May 20 grand? It, it's not that that 20 grand didn't help them in their life. It's just that's not the shit that we remember. And when we're on our deathbed many, many years from now, when we're considering and contemplating about our lives and looking back, we will. it's all about the people that we spent our time with, other people that we ignored. And you decide what side of the fence you are. Yes, most of us are actions are completely different. And with respect, I had this story that I thought, what I believe now was somewhat flawed for me. And that is, when I make enough money, I'll have the freedom to go and do what I want. I think money is a brilliant thing. I think building assets is a brilliant thing. I think investing is a brilliant thing. But it's not going to solve everything when you make it, whatever making it is. Mm -hmm. Because in that period of time, a lot of people forget about who they are they betray who they are, they neglect who they are, and then suddenly they've got this money in the bank and they turn around and say, right, I'm ready to go. 
And they go, well, now what? I have the freedom. Now what? And I don't know who I am. And I'm, it's happening all the time. And one other thing I want to share, because I did this recently with the Outdoor, the Outdoor Association of America. So basically, they send a leader of Patagonia, North Face, all the big brands that we know, and other smaller brands. And there was about 40 of them in the room. And I was doing a two-hour workshop the first evening to kick off their leadership 12-month program. And... I don't know why, but I turned around and I asked them this question. I think this is a wonderful question, not because it's coming from me, but just a wonderful question for us to consider. Is what have you given up in your life that nurtured you? Or what have you not given yourself permission to do that nurtured you? Because there's this thing in society that unless we're doing something quote unquote productive, or unless we're doing something that makes money or has the capacity to be monetized, it doesn't have value. And I went around the room, I got them all to think about it, and I gave them some context, and it was absolutely amazing. For whatever reason, everyone who put their hand up, it was pretty much five years ago, almost unanimously across the board. Five years ago, I stopped taking photographs because I didn't think it had any value. Five years ago, I stopped playing the piano. Five years ago, I stopped stopped climbing mountains. And he's, this guy's in the outdoor industry. And what I did was I said to them, I said, what was it like when you did these things, when you nurtured yourself? And people would say things, I can think about the language, Patrick. They say things like, oh, I used to do this silly thing called they did, like the dismissive nature. They'd say, like, I used to just draw. But what do you mean just fucking draw? What does that mean? And then I would talk about it and ask them like, okay, what were you like in those moments? So say, well, I was freer. I was more content. I was grounded. I was happier and wait for it. I was way more, not just productive, but I was way more my, like my imagination. I was way more creative. imaginative, yeah. creative. Thank you. <laughs> and it was just, creativity was going through the roof. Yeah. And you know what? I stood there and I sat there and rather than going, oh, how do we bring this back into your life? Which of course is the obvious. I said, I said, oh my God, look at, I've never been around so many selfish people in my life. And they looked at me astonished. And I said, how dare you deprive the world? of that part of you? How dare you close that up, lock that door and throw the key away and then turn up as a less creative person, as a less imaginative person, as a grumpier person, as a this, as a that. I said, how dare you? Now, not everyone liked it, mm -hmm. but that was what I was feeling because yeah. you're depriving yourself and the world. And the, and the last thing I'll say in that is I remember talking to a guy one day and I said, he talked about playing the guitar and I said, oh, you, you're a musician. And he goes, no. And I said, but I thought you played the guitar. He said, yeah, but I've never been paid to play. And I went, oh, <laughs> wow. I never got that text or that WhatsApp message or that email from the universe <laughs> that says you have to be paid in order to be something. Yeah, isn't that something, eh? And it was, it, was, it was so simple. And I think that's the point. I think we can overcomplicate this journey called life because I think so many of us have this. And I think you definitely will resonate, whether it's personally or, or professionally seeing this. How many of the people that you serve in your community feel it has to be hard? And if it's not hard, it ain't worth doing. Oh, yeah. You know, and I, and I, and I, and I can say this, you know, at, at, um, at the, now at the, you know, the sweet young age of 61 years old, I'm still getting this shit figured out. And I look through the, you know, the, the, my own journey and the clarity and then the lack of clarity and the getting dragged down rabbit holes. And it takes a lot to really stop long enough to your point to really look at what our gifts are to honor those gifts to share them with the world to be confident in them and not to dismiss them yes and look at where we are the happiest and what we have to contribute and it's such an interesting journey nowadays because what i'm seeing of course and i've i've actually experienced it myself 
is the uh, the and I'm going to call it an addiction to social media, the swiping, the the scrolling, the not being present to your life. I've actually had to over the past several months, probably the past year, I've like literally consciously going, nope, not looking at Facebook, not looking at Twitter, don't give a shit, not answering that private message. So I'm I'm really being focused and keeping my space so I can actually be present in my creative thoughts, uh, be present in my meditations and not be totally distracted outside of myself so that I can show up as the leader I'm committed to being, as the space holder I'm committed to being, as the support or guide uh, mechanism that I, I'm built to be. And But it takes a real uh, focused effort. It actually takes conscious I'm going to say thinking, but you got that's is being conscious of what the hell you're doing and who you're being, and what are you actually living your gifts? I, it all sounds pretty deep, but it's it's actually if we take that money is the definition of success that many people hold, whether they say that or not, they do. They think they're going to be way happier, but all the data, all the experience says that's not the case. So we can have that conversation and people can go, yeah, bullshit or whatever. They have to buy into it. Okay, we digress, but I want to go back to Philip. One thing on that, Patrick, and the one thing that I don't want people to do is to sit here and go, yeah, it is easy for you guys. Look at where you are now, if that's that's their perception. I hear this all the time. People go, oh, it was easy for you to give up the avenue and the journey you were on to pivot into coaching because you had the money to do so. And I remember one guy actually saying this to me. I go, oh, so you you had access to my bank account at that time because if you did... I had $250 in my bank account and we were underwater because we just went through the biggest recession in the history of the country of Ireland. And we basically, you know, went off a cliff in Ireland and that was basically the source of all the funding that we were creating to buy real estate in Canada at the time. And we were underwater to hundreds of thousands of dollars. So I don't want people to, with respect, dismiss this conversation. If you don't like who we are and what we're saying, that's fine. But, but, I'm speaking for you now if they don't like you. you are. That's not what I meant. You know what I mean. Perfect. But, but don't, don't dismiss this conversation and say it's fluffy. I believed this before I had any money and I believe it now and I will believe it if I have no money again and I have lots of money in the future. This has never changed for me. It's the same fundamental thing. And here's the other side of that coin is that you know people call mindset and have all sorts of phrases for it and it doesn't really matter. There's nothing fluffy about personal development. You know, personal development your thought processes, your consciousness, your mind, it's its no different than the muscle that you work in a gym. The difference is with the muscle that you have in the gym, what happens is that you actually physically can see it grow and you can feel it. You know, I've, I've got an upcoming guest that I'm so excited about having on the show, Barbara Aerosmith, but she, she actually has done the neurological, uh, that's what the, she's done over the years. She's written books on it and she's globally recognized for the work, which is to say, when we fire our brains different, when we we do that professional development, when we actually work specific ways, it fires our brain differently. And that's what she gives it the comparison to. She says, if you want to grow big biceps, you work those muscles. If you want to shift how you think, if you want to understand who you are, you go to the gym, the mental gym to do the work that helps 
develop that way of thinking and that way of how your brain fires. And it's such an interesting conversation. But the, the personal development side of our world and who we're being and living intentionally and, and considering where you're at and where does happiness come from? It's not outside of us. It's within us. So that's the work and that's the direction that we have to go. Looking at a history. Yeah, you know, the past has defined us if you're not really, but it doesn't have to. But you let it, you do it because you have belief systems, you have blind spots. And, and at any level, as much awareness as you have or as much awareness as I have or many others in an industry of personal development and supporting others and guiding others, we're all on our own journey. I'm on a journey. I still have a coach that I tap into every so often. And I've always had that because I can't see all my shit, you know. And so that whole concept of understanding who you are, living an intentional life, uh, are you in alignment with what you truly are at your core? You know, this goes back to identity. Are you really living your gift? And do you even know what your gift is? And uh, I'm, I tell you what, I'm guilty of uh, not acknowledging my gifts, gifts and not recognizing them. Got over that and uh, really stepping into it the past few years. And understanding for myself is that I have a purpose on this earth. And, you know, Alan Kahn, an old friend of mine and coach, um, calls it your calling. There's all sorts of terminology for it. But my realization for me is I use the term all people being their greatest selves and living their best lives. Now, that's what it is today. And it's evolving and shifting as I gain even more clarity. But I know one thing. What lights me up, what fulfills me, what I'm good at what I'm driven to do, what I can't actually stop doing is helping people, supporting people in achieving goals, finding out who they are, going to the next level, whatever that might be. So that's, I live into that. And Rain is giving me an awesome environment to do that through the community, through the culture, we get to support individuals in achieving those goals. And it's not always financial goals. It's, it's often just helping people get their shit together so that they can actually live the life that they want to live by, by definition, intentionally. So a little bit of a long-winded way of saying is that the clarity that we have, and when you talk about success, I mean, we just, when we got on this call, we're in the middle of Corona crisis, you know, two weeks into it now, you know, globally, everything is shutting down. They just closed Canada, U.S. borders today. I literally, you want, you want my life? You know, guy, I just, I just closed two stores in my business, 35 years. I had to close them and lay off staff. And you go, okay, you want that? <laughs> Please take it. You know, we have to deal with that. And it's crushing. It's crushing to have to let people go that have been with you and loyal and there for you. But they closed down the world, in my world, in, in, the, in this case, in the ice industry, uh, skating industry. Uh, all arenas closed. All rec centers are closed. Lock the doors. You know? So before I go off on a tangent, so let's come back to you because this is really about who you are and what you do. Um, so question for me, for you is, you talk the way you talk. How much of this is just intuitive for you, Philip? Like, you know, I know that you've had a lot of coaching in your life. You've done a lot of study. You've read a lot of things. You've, you're surrounded yourself. But how much of this is just 
Philip McKernan. Because I'm going to go back on your history a little bit uh, shortly. Um, I think we've spent some time giving context here, and I want to talk about your journey. But how much that you deliver is just intuitive. It's kind of an all-knowing because of the work you've done yourself and or just because you speak from your heart and you're connected to that. Over the last 12 months, those who know me, probably the last 18 months in particular, last 12 months, it feels like it's amplified, is I actually feel it's flowing through me. So it's actually not coming from um, learnings. It's not coming from... I don't read a lot because of my dyslexia and I, and I don't um, consume a lot of information, which I actually think gives me a different type of edge. I'm not suggesting that reading is bad. It's not what I'm suggesting. But yep. um, I'm literally now in... I have a, I, this is my famous notebook and that's it. I bring my notebook with me and um, the, the best work I do is where I basically have an intentionality uh, or an intention or a slight frame and then I let go. And somebody might ask a question, I might go one-to-one with somebody and some of it is stories from the past, some of it is frameworks that I'm aware of and, and, and familiar and very safe with. But then a lot of it is just, I'm creating, we're creating dialogue on the spot. So I would say it's a lot more intuitive and it's, it's always been that way. I just never trusted it before. Mm-hmm. I went to the mechanics and I went to safety and that's what a lot of people do when they think about designing a retreat or designing a, a workshop or designing a, being a coach is that they feel they have to fill the void with content. And while content is not bad, I don't think content is necessarily the best thing for individuals because I think individuals... I believe, already have the answers. They already know where they need to go. They're just getting in their own way and they don't want to name it because often they don't want to identify their gift because it's easier to fail executing your talent than running the risk of honoring your gift. And then the essence of you fails rather than some kind of external part of you. So a lot of it is very intuitive. And uh, I think probably because I've always been pretty intuitive Secondly, is I'm very emotional. Thirdly, is because I've experienced a lot of pain in my life. So I have a very high degree of empathy. So when, I, when I'm in front of somebody, I'm not listening to them. I'm actually hearing them. And hearing to me is a much more deep, deeper spiritual essence, which is basically you're almost feeling what they're feeling rather than just hearing the words coming out of their mouth. Yeah, I, yeah, I totally get that. You know, I'm, I'm, I've had, I have that experience often, which is where I'll work with a one-on-one or with a group and do basically what you've just described and people will go where did that come from like where do you get this shit from and i go i don't know it just comes to me like it, it's that way it does flow through you it's a it's a it's an interesting gift to have an honor and like you i've dismissed that gift over a period of time and now i'm just at a point in my life where it's taken me too it's just taken me too fucking long to own it right because it's what i do and and it's it's it's, it's really great. It's one of the reasons I was looking forward to this conversation, by the way. Well, just uh, on that note, if I can add one other thing. When was the last time somebody said to any of your listeners, hey, you're a great breather. I've been watching you breathe over your cup of coffee and your sandwich. And my God, you breathe so well. And the reality is for most of us, unless we do breath work or we do yoga or something like that, probably never has that been said to you, okay? Most likely. And I think that's the point is that we tend not to put a value on the things that we do naturally. 
And I have always been like this. And the one thing that people say, and I'm not here to say this, it's up to other people, is that the person you see on a stage or the person you see in a room or the person you see at home is the same, the same individual. I don't choose you know, my personalities. I, it'd be too exhausting for me. And I've always been like this. The challenge is that I created, I put so many masks on. I was trying to be something. I was trying to fit in. Then I tried to stand out. Neither worked for me. And then I stopped giving a shit. And now I feel I belong in the world. And to me, I think sometimes the gift and the things that create the most impact in the world are the things that we do naturally. And so I'll give you a quick example. So years ago, we created a concept called One Last Talk. So essentially, you stand on a stage for 15 minutes or less and share the one last talk you'll ever give to the world. And for a lot of people, it's very daunting. For many other people, it's exciting and challenging, the idea of going through this methodology. And this lady who was going to speak she said to me, I want to speak about the Aboriginal or the, what they refer to as the First Nations community in Canada. And I said, well, that's great. And, I'm, and that's a brilliant topic. And it's a sad topic. And it's a wonderful topic. But you're not a, you're not a First Nations. And therefore, I'm not saying you can't speak about it. But that's the point. You're speaking about something. Where one last talk is not about Donald Trump, global warming, the crisis that we're in. It's about sharing a part of your personal narrative. And... She said, well, that's the case. I don't have anything that's of value. And I looked at her and I got to know this lady very well. And I said, that's not, you and I both know that's not true. And it was in front of her 20 people. And she looked at me and she goes, no, 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 no. I'm not talking. No, no, no. I can't talk about that. And eventually she trusted me where she couldn't trust herself. And she gets up on a stage in Toronto and Canada. And she basically shares the story about the day she found her son after committing suicide. Mm. And she, sh she shared how she felt she had failed him as a mother. She also shared, and it wasn't, you should do this or you should do that. That's the point. I think coaching and the world of teaching is moving to a place of, here's the narrative. You take from it what you wish. Too many of us are being told what we should do with our lives and we're disempowering people to some extent. So anyway, she turned around and she said, as a mother, I, if I could turn back the clock, here's what I would have done different or what I would do differently. I would have cared less about the work. I would have stopped focusing on making so much money. I would have cared less about the grades that he had in school and cared less about education. And I would have told him, I, so I would have turned my phone off more and I would have told him I loved him every goddamn day. Mm. Five things that this woman would have done. And in that moment, she blew every parent's hearts open. And I turned to one man who was pouring down tears on his face. And I said, what are you going to do differently? I had all my notes and I was prepared. I just fucking threw it on the ground. I said, I don't give a shit. What are you going to do differently as opposed as relates to this, this talk, as a result of this? And he said, I'm going to phone my daughter later on. I'm just going to tell her I love her. Somebody else says, I'm going to take a day and I'm going to go out with my son. I'm going to do this. Simple things. And I looked at Bev and I said, Bev, Look at the impact you are making. Look what you've just done in this room. The point of the story is this, is that her greatest tragedy, the thing she was most ashamed about, the thing she was most embarrassed about, the thing she judged herself to hell and back most you know, in this world, is the very thing that would free her and also free humanity. And that's the point of a gift. A gift lies right next to your deepest wounds. And a lot of us hide from the pain of the past and therefore we hide from the beauty and the gifts that we have. And that, it might sound like an extreme example, but we all have those stories in some capacity. Yeah, and, and interesting is that I'm sure that she walked away from that weekend feeling so much lighter. Imagine the shame she was carrying. And she probably walked away from that just with so much release, those are powerful, powerful things. In your experience, 
around this, Philip, when we think about that conversation, the shame that she carried around her son and the guilt, how often do you see that? You know, how much, I, I believe that, you know, as a society and, and people in general are, are, are walking around with so much shame that if they could just release it, would have an epic, epic, create an epic shift in their life. Is that kind of your experience as well? 100%. It's one of the biggest blocks we have. Fear is a pussycat uh, next to next to shame and next to you know guilt. It's a pussycat. It is absolutely insignificant. Fear is often our, our friend, not our enemy. Fear is easy to get to know. You will never get rid of it, so stop trying. Um, just get familiar with it and get, get sit down and have dinner with it and get familiar with it. So when it comes back again the next time, it doesn't grip you as much as it historically. It just loosens its grip. But the the shame thing is 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 the most debilitating thing I've seen in in, in the human psyche. And every single person has it. And anyone tells me they doesn't they, they don't. They're full of shit or else they're just it's hidden from them. And they don't know. And the thing is, it's not the thing we talk about in 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 society. It's not the thing we have a, a drink in the bar and talk about shame. It's the thing that you hide. You hold. It's a part of your physical, mental, emotional kind of being, and we hide it from the world. And yet most of us want to be seen by the world and be accepted for who, who we are. And you can't be because there's a part of you, you're unwilling to show the world. And that's why I feel that everybody should have, everyone on earth should go and get therapy. Everybody on earth should, you know, air the things that they're most embarrassed about. I did a shame exercise recently, which trust me, I mean, I'm, I'm not waking up in the morning, bounding out of bed saying, hey, today's the day I talk about shame with a group. But it was profound, the level of shame that these men and women, and these are leaders of an industry and business that they were carrying into the world and carrying every day and didn't even know. And I'll give you a, a, an example of this. And this is a, actually, ironically, a gentleman both you and I know. But I remember we did a shame exercise years ago. And he just goes, oh, my God, I can't believe this name is coming up. And I said, what's the name? And he said, this, this could call her Julie. And he said, I had this girlfriend years ago and I cheated on her. And he said, I still carry shame today. And I, and I felt like it was yesterday. I said, how long ago is this? He said, 10 years. And I got him to go up on the whiteboard. I got him to describe who he was 10 years ago. Disconnected, angry, frustrated, lost, immature, um, cocky, arrogant, whatever. And then I got him to describe who he was today. And while his life is not perfect, it was, you know, more aware, more mature, you know, clear, mission-driven, et cetera, et cetera. And I said, uh, would the guy who you are today have done that to that girl? He goes, not a chance. But then something else happened. He goes, he looked at the board. He goes, actually, this guy wouldn't have dated that girl. Not that there was something wrong with her. We just weren't compatible, which is not to say his behavior was justified, but it was a way for him to kind of almost disconnect from the shame to realize and to begin to let go of the shame. And the second thing he, he, he could have done is to reach out to her and apologize. And that's the thing for a lot of people. I, I walked somebody yesterday through this process that eventually led them to realize that actually maybe I owe this person an apology. And a lot of us would rather be right than happy. And we allow pride get in the way. And we will never, ever, ever say, I'm sorry. And yet we have fucking nothing to lose because we're too busy sitting there going, no, no, Patrick needs to go first. No, I'll say sorry when Patrick says sorry to me first. And we spend 10, 8, 15, 20 years holding onto that anger. And the only person that's suffering is us. Well, that, yeah, isn't that, isn't that true, right? You know, there's, uh, there's the, that phrase, which is, you know, hating somebody, being angry with somebody, not forgiving somebody is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die mm. because 
that's we can't that's not our shit to carry and to hold yet that's what we do and uh it's 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 amazing what uh people operate on top of you know shame being such a big one and you talk about the need to be right and ego and all of the things that go with that and so you know in this conversation you know as we look at being locked down uh you know really uh not getting you know, no public things, many stores being locked down. And we've only just, I mean, we're two weeks in, not even, uh, probably get worse. You know, there's all sorts of stories that could happen. We don't know, but I suspect it'll get a little bit worse, but we're a lot worse before it gets better. That's for sure. Uh, given what's going on. And now people have to be with themselves. They have to be present to it. There'll be lots of distractions coming up. So in, some thought process, if you're giving somebody some guidance, you know, at any time right now, you're forced to be, you know, maybe by the time we get this podcast released, things will be quite different, but ultimately what guidance are you giving people and how do you be with yourself? How do you, if you've never done it, if you're often, you know, if you're driven to do something, if you're distracted constantly, if you're, you know, working 14 hour days, or is there some guidance that you could give somebody to just Here's some work that you can do given your lockdown or given that you're going to spend some time alone or even if you're back to work and by the time this podcast is released, what would be some guidance that you would give people in terms of how do they be with themselves? What are some things they should be asking themselves perhaps, Philip? Here's three questions people can consider right away. Um, and these are three questions that I'm asking myself directly is, is um, who am I going to be through this crisis? Who am I going to be as a person, as a man, as a father, as a leader? That's number one. Number two, the question is, how am I going to remember myself when I look back? And, this, and notice I say myself. I'm not saying how am I going to be remembered in my community or in the wider good, because that is seeking almost external validation. But when I look back in six months and six years and 60 years from now, how am I going to remember who I was through this time? Am I going to be the person that was a victim to the whole thing and sitting there complaining and moaning about it? Or am I going to look back with a degree of pride and say, you know what, I did everything I could to support my family my neighbors, my community, and humanity. And then the final thing is, I would love people to look from the inside out. I would say, how can I support myself during this time? What do I need to nurture myself? Do I need to dust off the piano, as we talked about earlier on? Do I need to take out the paintbrush and paint? Because I love painting, but I've actually, I'm embarrassed by it. How do I support my family and how do I connect with them? How do I support my neighbors? And literally from the inside out, how do I support my community? Oh, well, I don't have a community. I'm not, I don't run Rain or some coaching business. You have a community. If you're a human being and you've been walking outside the door at least two or three times over the last 10 years annually, you have a community and you don't realize it. How can I support that community? Somebody drove down to Denver yesterday. I live in Boulder, Colorado, and they picked up pizza from a restaurant. That they did two things. They were trying to support this restaurant that they love and the owner. And secondly, they delivered it to six or seven of their friends in the area. How can I support my neighbors? How can I support my community? How can I support humanity? And if you think about it from the inside out and ask yourself those questions, I think this is an opportunity to, and then and I have one other final. So there's three questions. There's a sequence of how you're going to help the world. And the final question is this. And this is the big one. Let's assume that, Patrick, this is a switch. It's not. But let's just say the switch is turned off, but next month or in six weeks, now the switch, somebody just hits the switch, lights are back on, world starts normal. Are you going to take up exactly where you left off? Or are you actually honest enough with yourself and courageous enough with yourself to actually look at your life and say, you know what, honestly, 
I don't want to take up where I left off. I'm actually out of alignment here. I'm doing work that's not really who I am, or I'm doing it in a way that's not the greatest expression of who I am. I'm not going to continue in a relationship that is not working. I'm, I want to work on my relationship with my, my husband or my wife. I'm going to say sorry to my kids for letting them down. I'm not going to continue to hold on to this pride. I'm going to reach out to my parents and I'm going to have a challenging conversation around boundaries. I'm going to talk to my team in a way that I've never talked to them before. Are you just? Are you happy, so happy with your life to date? And are you just going to take up for where you left off? Are you going to make some changes? Because this is the time. I think this is the greatest opportunity we've had as a human race to be forced to stop, to, to, to embrace that and use this time to effectively reimagine who we could be in the future. And the last thing I'll say is when we think about reimagining ourselves, the critical mistake all of us make, if I look at you through the lens of this glass, you're foggy, right? And I can't really make you out. We look at what's possible in our lives through the lens of who we have been, what we have done and what we know. And, and, and that's, that, is the, that is an instant mistake because what we do is instantly limit what's possible for us in our lives. What if we could take this, this, this filter and remove it temporarily and say, okay, I've been a carpenter for 20 years, but the, does that have to define who I'm going to be for the next 20 years? Maybe I want to be a musician. Maybe I want to be a, an investor. Maybe I want to, you know, whatever. Just begin to reimagine without the judgment because once there's judgment present, there is zero growth. And they're the things that I'm doing personally, and they're the things that I'm supporting people do. And I think it's the best time we've had in, in history to do that. And I think what it'll do is it'll give us something to solid to stand upon during this uncertain times. You know, there's a, uh, thanks for that. I think there's so much in that particular conversation. And this goes, you know, really thinking about who you're being and how you're showing up. That's, you know, part of the work that we do within the context for living of Elite 52 and the program that we have. And this, you know, this was really, for me personally, showed up 30 years ago. You know, when I first met Stephanie, I, I was, you know, I raised on the wrong side of the tracks and all the stories, not unlike you and the challenges that we had growing up and the things that we dealt with, different, but we all have that story behind us. But it was a time where I used to use the phrase, Stephanie would go, why are you such a dick? Like, why do you have to be so curt, abrupt, mean, all these things, right? And I, my response to her, I mean, and I want to just preface one thing. Stephanie uh, saw a diamond in the rough. You know, they say that a diamond is just a chunk of coal put under a great deal of pressure. My wife put me under a great deal of pressure. She saw whatever she saw in me, and, and that was great. But my response to her question was always, well, it's just the way I am. And... One day she snap shows because I did something, said something to somebody or whatever the circumstance was. I don't remember, to be honest with you. And she said, why are you that way? And I go, it's just the way I am. And she said something really profound. She goes, you know, it's a choice, right? And it was like, what? It had, I mean, as silly as it seems, it had never occurred to me that I could choose to respond and be different. Like, how fucking weird is that, right? Like, isn't that odd? You'd think it's so apparent, but I see it time and time again. People look at it and go, that's just the way I am. I was brought up that way. I, you know, this is my story, and my dad was a this, and my mom was a that, and my circumstances were this. How else could I be? And it's like, no, nah, well, yeah, decide. You know, make a choice, take a look. 
And it was really, really profound for me. And that actually was what started my own personal development journey. And, um, and, and, you know, <laughs> I fail that class every day, but anyways, the point is, is that we, we, we get to choose who we are right now in a time of global crisis. Who are we as leaders? You know, I think this conversation that we're having today, and I think it'll be huge value for people if they take the time to listen and that they really, really own who they can be in this time of crisis. Absolutely. These, these narratives that, these little narratives that go on behind the scenes, if they're not dealt with, they become part of the identity. And I had a lady yesterday who said, my parents are the way they are because it's a cultural thing. They're from India. And I said, don't pull that crap on me. And I said, I know there's definite, definite subtleties from between different cultures. There is no doubt about that in my mind, but it doesn't mean need to define you know, how it's going to be in the future. And if you say that, the, the greatest forms of, the greatest form of defense that I see in a coaching capacity is when somebody says to me, oh yeah, but you don't understand my wife. You've never met my parents. In other words, that's, that's them saying, you don't understand the circumstances, therefore you can't help me. And that gives me the way of, mm -hmm. or my pain is so unique that no one, you, no one in the world can help me. So what it, what it means is I can continue to isolate myself in this little island and be a victim to my own story yeah. and therefore never be helped because that is, has now become, that narrative has become my identity. I want to tell you one quick story, Patrick. There was a, there was a girl who came to a workshop years ago and this is about intuition versus the intellect, the stories. And we all have stories. What is the story you're telling yourself that whether it's true or not, it's kind of irrelevant, but that you're using it to hold back, hold yourself back in the world and hide. And I think everybody has a story, if not multiple stories. And this one lady, one day, um, she came to this workshop and I don't know how she did it, but between nine o'clock meeting for coffee and 9.30 before we kicked off, she'd managed to get to every participant. Now, there wasn't a big workshop, maybe 20 people, and tell them the tragic story that had happened to her, you know, two years ago or whatever. And um, I opened up by saying, so um, what brings you here? And this woman launches her hand into the air and nearly jumps up off her seat because she wants to be heard. And she says, I'm here because my heart was broken and decimated. My whole life is been torn apart and everything else. And she had the whole story off. And I'm looking around thinking, and everyone's nodding as if they know the story. And I'm, and I, I'm, I'm thinking, how did she do that? So I eventually got her to stop. And I just looked around and said, does everybody aware of the story? And most of them put their hand up. And I'm thinking, she must have been on a bus for eight hours the day before with them all. The, she got around to them. And I said to her, I said, uh, did you see it coming? And she goes, oh my God, not a chance. I mean, he just cheated on me. And I was brokenhearted, no one saw it coming. And I said, and no one has ever challenged her on this. And I felt I had nothing to lose. And I said, I don't believe you for one second. And she looked at me with total dismay, vibrating with anger. I said, you're too smart and too intuitive to pull that crap on me. Never mind yourself. And she got really angry. And I said, and I could feel the anger, like which I get a lot directed to straight at me. And I said, are you, are you angry? She goes, no, I'm not angry at all. And I, and I said, well, I'm feeling it. And I said, why don't we just name the possibility of, of a presence of anger and then just see what comes just behind that. And as she let go of the anger, she dropped her head. And as she lifted her face, what felt like two hours later, but it was maybe 10 seconds with mascara running down her face and the tears pushing it down her face. She says, I knew it the day I met him. And I knew it the day I walked down the aisle. And for those who are sitting, perhaps listening to this, 
if it's not already obvious, that say, okay, well, okay, great. So you got her to realize her part in this. Great. So is it all about responsibility? Is that the essence of the story? It's more than that. It's getting her to recognize that actually she had the answer. She, her spidey senses, her intuition was screaming at her at the time. She chose not to trust it for various reasons. Primarily one is that she needed a man in her life. This is her, this is her belief. If she didn't have a relationship in her life, she wouldn't be fulfilled and happy. Therefore, her attachment to having somebody in her life to fulfill her was part of the problem. Because when you're so attached to an outcome, you miss, you choose to ignore the red flags that go on on the peripheral. So what's great about this story is if she can now see the pattern, see the truth, it can equip her not to make the same mistakes in the future. That's the point. So we all have a victim story. My one was, I'm dyslexic. I can't read. I can't write. I've written five books, Patrick, and I'm going to write another 15 books at least. And I remember waking up one day and going, hold on a second, that's bullshit. It's true that you struggle reading. You can write, you just can't fucking spell. <laughs> There's a big difference. And I'll never forget that day, giving myself permission to do my little, my little typing with all my spelling mistakes and start my first book. And I'm, I'm not proud of many things that I've done, but I'm extraordinarily proud of the courage that I should. So what is the story you're telling yourself that with the greatest respect in the world just isn't true? Yeah, but I don't have Patrick's education, so I'm destined to be this, or I don't have that resources, so I don't think I'm ever going to fully make it. I get the whole gift thing. I'm like, my friend is a gift, but I don't. Mm-hmm. That one last talk thing, oh man, Philip should talk to my friend, John. His story is magical. But God, I couldn't do that. Challenge that story in yourself because I promise you, we all have it. I'm a dyslexic kid from a little village in Ireland who used to sit in class every single day wanting to puke up with, with overwhelming anxiety that at any moment a teacher would go, you McKernan read. And I swore to myself, not, not directly in terms of what I do now, but I swore to myself I would be, I would hide for the rest of my life. I would never put myself in, in, in ever in harm's way in a public manner to fail again, ever. And look what I do now. I do the absolute opposite of that. Yeah, isn't that, and that's such an interesting, you know, we talked about shame early. I mean, earlier, think about the shame you carried for dyslexia. You know, the embarrassment, the, oh my God, I'm not enough conversation, which gets, I mean, that just gets, I mean, you had it right as a young man. The good news in this is that you had that moment, that tipping point, that fork in the road or epiphany, whatever it might be, where you challenged it. And, and that's pretty, a pretty epic event. I mean, you think about the fork in the road that you had, the realization you had around dyslexia and you chose a, a fork that was, you know, you look into that, it looks pretty hairy in there, you know, pretty bushy, pretty like, how am I going to get through this? And, but you took it on in one step at a time, right? Wrote a book with all your, you know, you, at least you started producing. And of course that sings or speaks to really what it is for so many people around shame. It doesn't mean you have to come out and disclose to the world, it means that you take a step, you test, you get confident, you get comfortable, you have somebody you trust, you surround yourself with the right group, the right circumstance, the right environment to bust through this shit. It takes a lot of courage, a lot of bravery, a lot of commitment to just wanting to have the best life for you and your family and for those around that you affect. Because to your point, it's like putting you know, the oxygen mask on first in the plane. Imagine you in that scenario 
being brave, having the courage to bust through your shit, not even really realizing what that was, like, like terms of the impact, but by getting yourself handled, look at the difference you've made in the world because you actually, in that moment, you were being very selfish. It was about you. You committed to you. And that in fact was something that take, took you on a whole new journey and opened up uh, the whole uh, whole possibility of making an impact on many. And it's just interesting, those moments in time that we get to that shit, right? When we can bust through that. It's also, I've had some, without getting into too much detail, but some of the most defining moments in my life and the greatest tragedies in my life. And, and, and again, notice I'm saying my life. I'm not comparing it to yours or anybody else's. And that, again, is a tragedy when we compare our pain to somebody else's. And, I, I, and we instantly go, oh my God, well, I can't justify, you know, wallowing in, in the trauma, the pain I had. They don't even call it trauma because it's insignificant compared to Peggy or John or Henry. My pain that I went through as a, as a 10, 12, 13, 14, 15-year-old young man, boy, is the most significant pain that anyone has ever experienced on earth because it was my pain. That's the point. Our pain is the same. The circumstances are different. That's my personal view. And I'll always remember uh, uh, very quickly, just a few different quick kind of notes. I'll always remember, I remember a teacher saying to me one day, you mean nothing in here and you're going to mount nothing out there. And she pointed to the window. Now, when you're 14, I think I was, something like that, you start to really believe that shit. And I remember, you know, teachers, it wasn't the dyslexia, it was actually the judgment of the teachers, all of these teachers that should have been looking after me, just, you know, downing me and saying, you're lazy, you're not, they just, they're just they're, and I'm beginning to believe that story. And I remember being picked for a rugby team and it was the first time I'd ever been picked publicly for anything, Patrick, in my entire life. It was the first time I'd been seen and I'll never forget being picked for this team and 650 of my fellow students and peers saw this and I'll never forget the feeling. And again, for some people, a rugby team, like what's the big deal? But for me as a young man, it was the first time I'd been recognized publicly. And I went on holidays for the week. It was Easter break or something. I came back and they'd taken my name off the board and no one told me. And I remember being absolutely crushed. And I remember working with the Canadian Olympic team many years ago. And then the, the Canadian Olympic office heard about the fact that I was working with the team. They said, well, you can't be recognized unless you're a, a qualified sports psychologist. Uh-huh. And then I worked with a bank <laughs> and we were doing all these workshops in Ireland and the bank came and we we're about to launch this huge campaign to every school in the country about confidence and self-worth and workbooks. And I spent a year of my life putting it together. Their legal department called me and said, um, you, you, uh, you're a psychologist, you're a th- what's your qualification? And I said, I don't have one. They went, oh, as if accusation, like almost accusing me of lying. I said, hang on, I never said I had one, ever nor do I feel the need to specify I didn't. But the big story, uh, just to, to, to counter all of that, is I went for lunch two years ago, and I am, I'm in this meeting, this lunch was casual, and this guy says, you, this guy runs a major league soccer uh, team, and you, and he points to me, you need to meet. And we met, and he got into conversations about how I could support the team and the organization. I said, before we go any further, I just want you to know one thing. I'm not a sports psychologist any of that stuff. And he looks at me and pretty much said, what part of that do you think I give a flying shit about? And he said, I want you. I don't want the letters after your name. And what has transpired, Patrick, is the reason the players relate to me is because I'm not throwing an academic rule book at them. I'm not saying sports psychologists are flawed. I have nothing to do with that. I admire them. Well done. Great. Mm. 
all the work you've done. But I don't think they can necessarily often connect at the human level because they're too busy bringing the, the intellect, yeah. learn the intellect to the table. Yeah. So, um, so that's kind of like a little like some of the most painful, slammed in the face moments of my life, and continuing to go through those things and allowing them to make me stronger, not diminishing who I am in the world. From the place that you deliver from, you know, you're, you're not a head guy, you're a smart guy, but you're not a head guy, you're a heart guy. You know, you're, you actually lead from the heart, you deliver from the heart, you speak from the heart. It's part of who you are now. It's what you, it's the journey you've been on. And it's interesting that you, when we talk, because Stephanie has had, I've had these conversations with Stephanie many times. I mean, she worked in the NHL, she worked, she worked with COC, she worked with US uh, OC, and she's a, a mental performance coach. She's not a psychologist. And that's such an interesting dynamic in that space is that, and to your point, psychologists are powerful. Many athletes work with them. And many people and athletes are actually intimidated by that because they feel like they're being analyzed as opposed to guided, as opposed to heard, as opposed to supported. And it's such an interesting uh, conversation in that space. You know, there's a, a fundamental, when we go back to who we're being, that I, that shows up a lot for me, even in this conversation with you, Philip, is that in the world of leadership and and being a great leader and supporting others in being a great leader, there's there's five words that I use that have to be how leaders show up, who they are. And that is the five words are authentic, vulnerable, humility. So humble, compassionate, and empathetic. And regardless of what you do, or if you don't have those, if you can't embrace those five qualities, you'll never be the best leader that you can be. You'll get shit done. For sure. Lots of people do. But as I'm listening to you, that's all of these things show up in, in who you are, yet you really haven't talked a lot about the doing this. Do you, do you know what I'm saying? It's like, it's such an interesting, for me anyways, I find that with this, the individuals that I observe and are the most fulfilled and happiest, and we'll use the word successful in that regard, they display these qualities consistently. And that's how they show up. That's how they deliver. That's how they support their clients. That's how they support the public and in the roles that they play. Any any thoughts on that yourself, Philip? I'm not trying to. I'm just trying to see your perspective of it because I love uh, the alignment we have in terms of the conversation. Yeah, I tend to shy away from people's kind of perspectives and how I am in the world. Um, simply because I don't tend to look at who I am and what I do and how I do it. I, I, it's, I'm so outwardly focused in the sense that I'm obviously, it comes from a deep place within me, but outwardly focused in terms of impact I can make in other people. But leadership is a really interesting thing. And I think that we're all leaders. Not many of us actually believe that. And I wouldn't disagree with those five things at all. And um, it, it, it's the one thing that I, I love to, and it's not even adding it because I think those things are representative of this word and that's being courageous and, uh, and being brave. And uh, there's something about braveness that I think we sometimes feel that somebody has and I don't and that I need to find braveness and and if you need to find it it's almost like it's outside of you and and intuition I've got to find it well where do you think it is behind a bush and next to a kangaroo and in, in, in the outback in Australia Good point. it's not outside of you it's already here you have abundance of courage just maybe you don't remember the last time you tapped into it or maybe you've done the classic you've dismissed 
the time that you've done it. You go, oh yeah, well, I, okay, well, you think that's courageous. Well then, yes, I have experienced courage as a parent. Um, I was courageous when I left my job that I didn't like and I didn't have a, a net. But I'm talking about real courage. What's different between that and, and real? That is real courage. So we discount the things that we have. So yeah, I don't disagree with any of that. I think... Um, vulnerability is probably the number one thing that I think allows us to connect with other human beings. The challenge with vulnerability is that in recent years, I feel, I, I feel and see people adopting it as a tool to connect uh, almost in a, in a constructive, manufactured way. And I think that's where it gets dangerous. But vulnerability is the thing that... And I, the most vulnerable, some of the most vulnerable words in society... People think about vulnerability as being something very sophisticated, bearing your soul. Imagine just using these three words in business and in life and as a parent, particularly a bit more. I don't know. And being able to be okay in your skin that you don't have to be as a coach, a guide, a parent, a leader, an office manager, uh, you know, a barista. And to be able to have all, like not to have, we feel the pressure that we have on ourselves to have all the answers. But if you give yourself permission to say the words, I don't know, and maybe follow it up, or I'll figure it out, or I'll let you know, or whatever. It just gives us, it just takes us, takes so much pressure off us. And it's great to see our kids to see that actually dad or mom is not the all saying I, because then what it does, it gives them permission to not have to be the same and continue the, 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 the cycle. Yeah, that's that's some that's some pretty high level parenting skills, uh, which means that you have to really, really do the work on yourself. So, you know, as we start to kind of wander down a, a path here, Philip, you know, you touched on, you know, you're born and raised in Ireland uh, as a young man. You had dyslexia. You wrote a book. You but your journey, um, you came to Canada. I think you're in you're now in the U.S., right? Is that is yes. that you're still you're right. back in the you're not back in the U.S., but you've moved into the U.S., when you were uh, growing up, what was it like for you? How did you end up in Canada? Like, did you um, decide on your own as a young man, I'm going to Canada? Give me a little bit of a background because those are other, I always look at immigrants, they're leaving family, they're leaving culture, they're leaving a country. That, that in itself, to me, that's a big and brave step. You know, to leave family, friends, familiarity, culture, what you grew up in, I mean, often it's, you know, if you're in, there's countries that you're going, I got to get the hell out of here before I, or I'll die. You know, that wasn't, I don't know. Was that the case in Ireland? What, what, yeah, right. So for you, uh, give me a little bit of background about that part of your journey, because that's pretty brave. Yeah. I mean, I've almost died twice, which we can maybe cover a different day in a different shot, but, um, and I think facing my own mortality has given me almost a sense or an ability to let go of certain things. The hardest decision I've ever had to make in my entire existence on this earth and the hardest decision I think I ever will make in this life is to leave the country I loved. Um, I didn't have to get out. The tax man wasn't chasing me. The cops weren't chasing me that I know. There wasn't some virus. There wasn't a, a global meltdown. In fact, the Ireland was at the, the almost the peak of its, of its boom. And for whatever reason, I felt that I needed to leave the country I knew the people I knew, the, the environment that I knew to discover or rediscover who I actually was. Now, for some, that might sound corny and cliche, but in essence, that that's what it was. Because I, I realized, and what happened was, Patrick, we went to Sri Lanka 
the Christmas before. It was the first time I'd ever been away for Christmas. And I love this idea of disrupting certain things in our lives. So if you go to your mother's for Christmas every single year, well, maybe don't. Go to India or go to somewhere else, maybe not obviously in the current climate, but and just disrupt the, the pattern a bit. And I went to Sri Lanka. I'll give you the short version. Went to an orphanage, came out of that orphanage and went, oh my God, like, there's just more to the world. I could make an impact. It was the first time I saw that I could actually create value in the world. And again, I went back and no disrespect to my friends, but I remember going to a party on, on New Year's Eve and everyone was complaining about how much food they'd eaten, how much alcohol they'd consumed, and they were dreading going back to work on Monday morning. And something just literally switched. And I just went back to your point, back to your, your story about Stephanie. It's like, my environment is simply a choice. And... In that moment, I said, I'm choosing not to just go back into the life that I lived. I want it to change. I need it to change. It has to change. I think the pain finally got bad enough, which unfortunately for many is what we, we wait for. And then that was the beginning of the thought process. You see, and I, I appreciate you saying <clears throat> it's very brave to leave the country you love, the country you know, the place. It's one thing to move state or province. I think it's brilliant. But to move country is a whole different animal for various different reasons. And I think people have cited that as a very courageous move. But actually, I, with respect, would like to challenge it. The courage started when I stood on that balcony on New Year's Eve and actually challenged, is this, that's when the courage comes. The execution is a byproduct of that. And what we tend to do is reward the execution too much in life. And the courage occurs and that intersection between reality kicking in and pain crossing into possibility. And then the byproduct was, we've got to leave Ireland. And then going to Canada uh, was basically, we were trying to build a real estate business and bringing money from Ireland and all that kind of stuff. And that all fell apart almost two years later when we built this fund and this possibility. And then the economy in Ireland went boom, like off the edge of a cliff. And we had spent every penny we had building the legals and the branding and everything else, putting the people in place, every single dollar and more. So we were left with no cash, a ton of money coming in. Like we were promised, um, you know, probably $22 million within the first 12 months. We had another fund raising more money and that just turned off like that. And that was a very difficult time. And I remember sitting in Edmonton and the phone wasn't ringing. We were buried in snow. I'm looking at my wife thinking, what have we done? And my wife, we went back for Christmas because we were just like desperate. We needed to connect with family. And we're in my parents' kitchen and my wife said, I'm not going back to Canada. And I said, why? She says, because it simply is not working. And I looked at her and I said, this is exactly what I said. So probably too late for excusing bad language at this point. But anyway, I said, fuck it. I'm going to do this coaching thing. And I remember one hour later sending an email out to our massive database of probably 25 emails because I didn't have Facebook at the time. And there was maybe 20, 30 people I knew in Canada at the time. And I said, I'm going to do coaching and I'm going to start this coaching thing because the pain of not doing it has finally caught up. And a gentleman from Canmore in Canada emailed me back, which what felt like two minutes. And he said, about effing time this is what you were destined to do. And I've known this from the day I met you. And that is another point for a lot of people is some people often see something in you that you cannot see in yourself, or more importantly, you're unwilling to see in yourself. He said, I'll be your first client. And I said, you don't know how much it is. And he goes, it doesn't matter. And then I had a second client called Ian Zabo, and he was the second guy to sign up. 
mm-hmm. and he's from Toronto, and many yeah. of your your yeah. uh, your followers know Ian. Mad as a brush, as we say in Ireland, but in the most beautiful way. And he became my second. He he's the guy that, and those two men were the guys that believed in me when I still struggled. And I would take a phone call once every two weeks or once a week for six months, and I would connect with them, and I would doubt, and I was concerned, and help them, and whatever. Um, and that's the journey. So Pauline, when you came over, your wife Pauline, what, did she come with you when you first came over from Ireland? Was she part of? Were you guys? Were you married then? Or I don't remember now anymore. Were you married? Uh, we, were, we were married and uh, Pauline arrived in July. And this is not this is not my finest moment. And I remember driving to the airport in Edmonton to, to pick Pauline up. And I'll never forget, it started to snow in July. Yeah, I'm thinking, yeah. what is going on? <laughs> and I was meant to go to Ikea to get like the last few pieces for this house that we had rented at the time. And uh, I didn't get there in time. So I went straight to the airport, picked Pauline up, and she'll never forgive me for this. And uh, we left the airport and we drove back to Ikea. I, d- I can't remember where it was in Edmonton, but it doesn't really matter. And uh, we picked up the last pieces. And the first thing I bought her when she arrived in Edmonton was a 99 cent hot dog in Ikea. And that's her benchmark for like arriving from the other side of the world to set this new life up. <laughs> High powered, uh, you know, high flying husband bought her a 99 cent hot dog. But the one person I do want to cite, uh, and we've lost touch over the last number of years, is uh, is Don, Don Campbell. And he and Rain and and you guys and and Don gave me a break at the time and uh, put me on stages. And I'll never forget the first time I spoke in Edmonton and then the speaking in the football stadium, I think it is, like the the American football or Canadian football stadium in in Calgary. And you know, I remember that being a, a great time for me and a challenging time for me. Um, but at the end of the day, when I look back over my journey, I'm also very conscious that my journey is a lot of decisions, a lot of challenges, a lot of courage, a lot of luck, but a lot of people who actually gave me a break. And our business is built on people. And if people didn't reach out and put me on podcasts or reach out and ask me to be on stages, I wouldn't be sitting here doing what I'm doing. So we often think that this journey is ours. It it is ours, but it's actually supported and and fueled by people who actually give you a shot at different times. And for for those people, and Don was one of those, I want to say thank you. Yeah, Don was a catalyst for the journey and the the shift in many people's lives, you know, mine included. And you're right, it's there's a there's a place when we look back on I look at even some of the people I've met that seemed at the time to take me to just fuck it up or fuck me over or whatever story I had at the time in reflection, I look at that and go, you know, that actually was a pretty epic event. It actually was really good that that happened. And it's rare that I can look back and say, man, if that, I don't have any stories around that because I actually do believe a hundred percent, you know, like my, my, I would believe 100% that I have 100% responsibility. My life is a reflection for the decisions I make. The ref- my life is a reflection of who I am. And so I'm really, really always focused on who I'm being and how I'm showing up. And if I want to have a great life, which I do, I have to look at it in in that way. So when I look at, uh, you know, we, we talk about a dawn, there's, I have many dawns in my life over the years that were true catalysts. You know, Don happened to be a significant player in that game. And I know for you, Don was a significant uh, kind of shift for you at that time, right? And uh, it's, it's always interesting to reflect and to go back. I, I got to finish the story because we got to wind down here and I know you got to go, but I want to, I got to complete a story in my head. Now, we were in St. Lucia together, you, Stephanie, me, Pauline, and friends. Um, and I remember a time, and this is my story only, by the way. 
is that I recall that you were going at that time through a really epic shift in your own personal journey. Like there was some realizations. Now, is that a, is that a story I'm telling myself or was that, you know, is that's my memory and my recall of it. And it's always been there. It's always been like, I remember when Philip, when we were in St. Lucia, we were there and after a few days or a weekend or two weeks in, we were doing some shit. And then you had a, like a bam, like a, something flipped for you. Do you remember that? Or is that just my story? Yeah, I think, I think what was going on at that time, if my memory is correct, is the realization that my journey lay in, call it guiding, coaching, uh, you know, you know, giving back in some capacity around that. And that's the thing that I've been denying of myself. And mm. I think that's what we do. We deny the parts yeah. of ourselves that are the most authentic expression of, of who we are in this world. And I had spent, and by the way, it takes a ton of energy. I mean, it's exhausting, but we don't even realize how exhausting it is until we finally own up to it. And um, yeah, I think that was a continuation of the, of the, it was almost like it was bursting out of me and the realization that, you know what, McKernan, you're, you're, you're doing okay, but you're not, it's just not in alignment. And that was the, 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 the continuation of that being uncovered somewhat proactively and somewhat uh, being forced through my body uh, in a spiritual context. Yeah, I remember that time. I go back to, you know, just saying, I followed your journey for a while, admire the, 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 like how you've come along. I've watched, we haven't connected for a while, but then I realized we did connect a few years ago in Vancouver when we were living in Shangri-La, you and Pauline and the kids came up. It was great to see you. And uh, you were doing some really, really cool stuff back then. And uh, now you're into the U.S. You're working with some very, very high-level clients. Uh, we're in the middle of coronavirus. We're all dealing with shit that we got to deal with. And now uh, I, I also believe that uh, these kinds of challenging times uh, will drive innovation for, for all of us. And, um, yeah, we all got to get through it. And so stay healthy, stay well. So as we wind this down, Philip, thanks again for your time. But I like to do some rapid-fire questions just to have a little bit of fun. Absolutely. Go for it. Okay. Now, this is a kind of a loaded question, but I'm going to ask it anyways, because I, I, I don't know what your answer is going to be. A book that you're reading or a book that you gift a lot? Do you have one? David White is on my shelf over there. He's a poet and a, and a philosopher and a writer and is crossing the unknown sea. Okay. What's your favorite swear word, my friend? That's got to be fuck. Yeah. And you, because you got that Darn Irish accent. It just sounds better, right? Like you can get away with that. Do you have a favorite inspirational quote? Um, I, this might sound very self-serving, but um, it's uh, probably one that I actually believe in to my core and is we give ourselves what we feel we deserve. And uh, it's a great way for us to uh, just to go a little bit deeper with uh, some of the results we're getting in life. Hmm. If heaven exists, what do you want to hear God say when you get to the gates? Why did it take you so long to get here? <laughs> I'm, 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 for me, I'm happy that it's taking you a long time. On a scale of 1 to 10, how weird do you think you are? Uh, probably 12. Room, desk, or your car? What do you clean first? Desk. Do you have a favorite tune? Uh, one from you two. How about a favorite movie? I've got a lot. I'm a bit of a sap when it comes to movies. I love Notting Hill. Um, I love uh, that movie where it is. Um, oh my God. It's just, I just talked about it last night. Let's just say Notting Hill is, uh, I love that movie. Yeah, it's a great movie. How about Frozen 2? You watched it with the kids yet? No, I haven't. Oh, dude, you got to watch it. Come on. I'm going to wait till the kids go to bed. Then I'm going to watch it on my own. <laughs> <laughs> That's the problem with Disney. The, Dis the only problem with Disney is that they let kids in. <laughs> so true. 
Philip, what are you grateful for today? I'm grateful, deeply, deeply, deeply grateful for the fact that um, I can uh, I can share what I believe in the world and hold space for other people. It's something that I wish somebody had done for me earlier in my life. And I'm just grateful that I have the opportunity to do that um, as long as I can. Today, I am grateful for you being on my show as a guest. Uh, grateful to have known you and to know you. And to, uh, at some level, call you a friend. Uh, although we've drifted apart, I still have a, so much respect for you and Pauline. And um, so grateful for the opportunity to reconnect and for you to share your story and your wisdom with our guests on the show today. So I want to say thank you for that. Thank you. If you don't mind, can I share one little quote I read the other day? Please. And I just, I just found this yesterday, and it's from a um, psychoanalyst who was born in 1896 called Donald um, Winnicott, I think is this how it's pronounced. The catastrophe you fear will happen has already happened. The catastrophe you fear will happen has already happened. And I think in the world today with this crisis that's going on and the fear and the worry that people have, I think a lot of it is basically, for me personally, I won't get into too much detail, it's actually it's a fear of something that has happened in the past re-emerging. And I'd love people just to reflect upon that, um, that the worry they have with greatest respect in the world is not necessarily directly related to the virus or the uncertainty. There is some real reality, but it's also reintroducing them to something that has actually happened in their life before. And I think if people are open to that and they can navigate that, I think it will help them navigate the current landscape that we're in. Beautiful. Well said. Thank you, my friend. And uh, I know this is going to be set up for, uh, uh, you know, another podcast down the road. There's lots more to talk about. So thank you for your time today. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. If you found value in the podcast, please take the time to rate and review and share with others. Share with your friends. As it is my goal to always improve and to provide the highest value for you, the listener, if you have any comments, suggestions, or questions you'd like answered, please email me at ceo at raincanada.com. That's ceo at reincanada.com. I look forward to hearing from you. And until next time, Patrick out.